This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, June 7th, 2022, episode 91, concerning wage warfare after the plague. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. In our previous episode, I mentioned the idea that one reason the itinerant laborer Thomas Fuller might have been eager to take up with a stranger who's driving sheep, uh, stolen sheep it turns out, unbeknownst to Thomas, uh, Thomas might have done this out of some anxiety about being charged with vagrancy if he were perceived as wandering around unemployed. Now, I tried to research this and wasn't able to get a clear answer on just how draconian the vagrancy laws were in England in the late 15th century, but I was led to some interesting laws and statutes from the mid-14th century that have a particular resonance with a very current problem. So right now, as I record this, we're basically two and a half years into the global COVID-19 pandemic, and though new variants continue to emerge and public health policy proceeds cautiously, It feels fairly safe to say, uh, knock on wood, that we are at last coming out on the other side of this pandemic and an end, or at least a low-grade new normal, is in sight. But even though case numbers are dropping and hospital burdens are lightening, we're still very much feeling the larger social and economic effects of nearly two years of pandemic. One of those things is a rather striking change in the workforce and the labor supply, namely that there's a labor shortage. The fundamental causes of this shortage remain a matter of debate. Uh, I just saw one newspaper article on 13 possible causes of the labor shortage. A person from the future looking back at this pandemic, uh, much like we might look back at the Black Death, might assume that a post-pandemic labor shortage would naturally be explained by the death toll among the labor pool caused by a deadly disease. But that's not really the case with COVID-19. The more popular theory is that pandemic lockdowns and layoffs worked to alter perceptions about the value of certain kinds of jobs or the ways in which people ought to work. The shortage is not that there are more jobs than we have bodies to fill them. It's that we have a lot of people who are uninterested in returning to the kinds of jobs pay, and conditions they had before the pandemic. Now, in the case of the Black Death, the labor shortage was indeed primarily due to having more land to cultivate and more jobs to fill than there were surviving laborers. There was a labor shortage because a lot of the labor had died. But there is nonetheless a similarity, I think, with our present moment, in that in this shortage, the laborers, the workforce, became aware that they now had more leverage over their employers and more power and agency in society. By the laws of supply and demand, they could demand a much higher price for the limited supply of their labor than employers had become used to paying. And in a disrupted landscape where whole villages had dissolved from population loss and family bonds lay fragmented alongside the old manorial loyalties, workers were far more free to uproot themselves and relocate to a place where someone was willing to pay them better. Now, based on the patterns of history, what should we predict would happen when a previously economically exploited group begins to resist that exploitation, when the previously disempowered begin to assert their power? Well, the empire strikes back. The established power structure tries to force everyone back into their earlier roles and status be it through Jim Crow or union busting or sumptuary laws in the Middle Ages. For King Edward III, in the wake of the Black Death in the 1340s and 50s, 
the way to deal with a fundamental change in the power balance between workers and owners was to just pass laws dictating that everyone had to pretend the economics were back to how they had been before the plague. In 1349, roughly as far into the Black Death as we are currently into COVID-19, King Edward's government drafted its first ordinance condemning the scarcity of workers, the idleness of beggars, and the refusal to work for statutory wages. The purpose of this law was reiterated two years later by the more formal Statute of Laborers of 1351. I'll read from the text of that now, as translated by Ernest F. Henderson. I think one of the most interesting things about it is just how blunt it is. It wears its motives on its sleeve and ignores any actual economic rationalizations for a simple moral assertion about just how it believes people ought to behave. It's also kind of remarkable for just how directly it echoes some of the very same arguments made today about how it's the people who aren't working or who received assistance during the pandemic, be it charity or stimulus, who are the real exploiters in the system. So here's the Statute of Laborers of 1351. Edward, by the grace of God, etc., to the Reverend Father in Christ William, by the same grace, Archbishop of Canterbury, Primate of all England, greeting. Because a great part of the people, and especially of the workmen and servants, has now died in that pestilence, some, seeing the straits of the masters and the scarcity of servants, are not willing to serve unless they receive excessive wages, and others, rather than through labor to gain their living, prefer to beg in idleness, We, considering the grave inconveniences which might come from the lack especially of plowmen and such laborers, have held deliberation and treaty concerning this with the prelates and nobles and other learned men sitting by us, by whose consentient counsel we have seen fit to ordain that every man and woman of our kingdom of England, of whatever condition, whether bond or free, who is able-bodied and below the age of sixty years, not living from trade nor carrying on a fixed craft, nor having of his own the means of living, or land of his own with regard to the cultivation of which he might occupy himself, and not serving another, if he, considering his station, be sought after to serve in a suitable service, he shall be bound to serve him who has seen fit so to seek after him. And he shall take only the wages, liveries, mead, or salary, which, in the places where he sought to serve, were accustomed to be paid in the twentieth year of our reign of England, or the five or six common years next preceding that is, from just before the arrival of the plague in 1347. Provided that in thus retaining their service, the lords are preferred before others of their bondsmen or their land tenants, so, nevertheless that such lords thus retain as many as shall be necessary and not more, and if any man or woman being thus sought after in service will not do this, the fact being proven by two faithful men before the sheriffs or the bailiffs of our lord the king, or the constables of the town where this happens to be done, Straightway through them, or some one of them, he shall be taken and sent to the next jail, and there he shall remain in strict custody until he shall find surety for serving in the aforesaid form. And if a reaper or mower or other workman or servant of whatever standing or condition he be, who is retained in the service of anyone, do depart from the said service before the end of the term agreed, without permission or reasonable cause, he shall undergo the penalty of imprisonment and let no one, under the same penalty, presume to receive or retain such a one in his service. 
Let no one, moreover, pay or permit to be paid to anyone more wages, livery, mead, or salary than was customary as has been said, nor let anyone in any other matter exact or receive them under penalty of paying to him who feels himself aggrieved from this double the sum that has thus been paid or promised, exacted or received. And if such person be not willing to prosecute, then it, the sum, is to be given to any one of the people who shall prosecute in this matter. And such prosecution shall take place in the court of the Lord of the place where such case shall happen. And if the lords of the towns or manors presume of themselves or through their servants in any way to act contrary to this our present ordinance, then in the counties, weapon takes and trithings, suit shall be brought against them in the aforesaid form for the triple penalty of the sum thus promised or paid by them or the servants. And if perchance prior to the present ordinance, any one of them shall have covenanted with any one thus to serve for more wages, he shall not be bound by reason of the said covenant to pay more than at another time was wont to be paid to such person. Nay, under the aforesaid penalty, he shall not presume to pay more. Likewise, saddlers, skinners, white tars, cordwainers, tailors, smiths, carpenters, masons, tilers, shipwrights, carters, and all other artisans and laborers shall not take for their labor and handiwork more than what, in the places where they happen to labor, was customarily paid to such persons in the said twentieth year and in the other common years preceding, as has been said. And if any man take more, he shall be committed to the nearest jail in the manner aforesaid. Likewise, let butchers, fishmongers, hostlers, brewers, bakers, pullers, and all other vendors of any victuals be bound to sell such victuals for a reasonable price, having regard for the price at which such victuals are sold in the adjoining places, so that such vendors may have moderate gains, not excessive, according as the distance of the places from which such victuals are carried may seem reasonably to require. And if any one sell such victuals in another manner, and be convicted of it in the aforesaid way, he shall pay the double of that which he received to the party injured, or, in default of him, to another who shall be willing to prosecute in this behalf. And the mayor and bailiffs of the cities and boroughs, merchant towns and others, and of the maritime ports and places, shall have power to inquire concerning each and every one of who shall in any way err against this, and to levy the aforesaid penalty for the benefit of those at whose suit such delinquents shall have been convicted. And in case that the same mayor and bailiffs shall neglect to carry out the aforesaid and shall be convicted of this before justices to be assigned by us, then the same mayor and bailiffs shall be compelled through the same justices to pay to such wronged person or to another prosecuting in his place the treble of the thing thus sold. And nevertheless, on our part too, they shall be grievously punished. And because many sound beggars do refuse to labor so long as they can live from begging alms, giving themselves up to idleness and sins and, at times, to robbery and other crimes, let no one, under the aforesaid pain of imprisonment, presume, under color of piety or alms, to give anything to such as can very well labor or to cherish them in their sloth, so that thus they may be compelled to labor for the necessaries of life. So, there you have the primary goals of Edward's Statute of Laborers. Right here at the outset, I do want to just note a specific detail that helps to combat one of those pernicious misconceptions about the Middle Ages. Did you notice how Edward sets the age limit for able-bodied workers at 60? 
There's this notion that pops up, especially in comedy and pop culture remarks on the Middle Ages, that because medieval life expectancy was relatively low as an average compared to today, that therefore somebody 40 years old would be viewed as a senior citizen. Statistically, you may indeed have been more likely to die of illness or injury in the absence of good medicine, and thus less likely to live long in the Middle Ages, but that doesn't change the actual biology of aging. You still had fit and vigorous 40 and 50-year-olds, just at a lower proportion of the population than today. And Edward setting the allowed retirement age, so to speak, at 60, testifies to this. Anyway, on to the aims of the statute. It really is just a huge attempt to hit an economic reset switch by the stroke of a pen. Hey everybody, go back to what you were paying and what you were being paid before the plague, or go to jail. Despite its heavy-handed attempt to dismiss economic realities by fiat, there is a peculiar concern with fairness in this fundamentally unequal system. On the one hand, the unquestioned power and privilege of those of higher rank over those of lesser is rigorously reinforced, so that the unemployed servant has no choice but to accept any offer of employment from anyone of higher rank who offers it, and at what amounts to a fixed statutory wage. And yet, on the other hand, those lords of high rank are enjoined not to abuse this privilege and employ more people than they need at what was, we should remember, artificially low wages. There's also a kind of interesting legal overreach, or at least the law intruding into private negotiations, in the statement that if someone pays a higher wage to a servant, then if they themselves, the employer, do not prosecute their servant for demanding an unlawful wage, then that right to prosecute and to collect the damages of double the unlawful wage goes to anyone who wants to snitch. You can't voluntarily pay more to a trusted servant than the law allows, or else anyone in your household who knows about it can turn the two of you in and get a big fat reward. And here we have yet another present-day parallel to this kind of law with the proposed legislation in some U.S. states, uh, namely Texas and Missouri, to let private citizens sue their friends and neighbors if they discover that they had sought out abortion services in another state. The statute of laborers doesn't just seek to control wages, it throws in some price-fixing as well, threatening merchants with penalties if they overcharge for their wares, while leaving the specifics about what constitutes overcharging pretty vague and subjective and, one imagines, subject to abuse. In another contemporary connection, uh, I've heard people, even people who self-identify as conservative, complaining about why doesn't the president just do something, like Edward III, to force the oil companies to set gasoline prices at a reasonable level, or to somehow just freeze inflation. There seems to be this similar desire for government to step in and mandate that things go back to normal. Well, if the history of planned economies isn't enough testimony to why trying to set prices by fiat is not typically a winning move, the Statute of Laborers of 1351 is another piece of evidence on that scale, albeit in a smaller way. It's not that this statute caused the English economy to collapse, uh, but rather the fact that most of the historical evidence indicates that this statute was never really rigorously enforced or widely complied with shows that the realities of economic forces beat out the king's wishful thinking. The statute may have slowed wage growth somewhat in the decades after the plague, but it did not reset everything back to the pre-plague status quo. And it's also generally considered to be one of the underlying reasons for the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. 
Luckily for British workers, the Statute of Laborers of 1351 was formally revoked by the passage of the Statute Law Revision Act of 1863, a mere 500 years later. Uh, which is me being a little tongue-in-cheek, since of course much of this medieval law had been superseded by other laws in the interim. But that said, one of the central concepts articulated in this law, that of the undeserving and idle poor whose moral and legal obligation should be to work for a living, remained a part of English law. We see it in the poor laws that established the workhouses that Charles Dickens satirizes in Oliver Twist, and, as I mentioned earlier, that same sentiment certainly hasn't disappeared from debates about the welfare state. In a 2002 article, Elaine Clark nicely characterizes the insidious rhetoric of the statute of laborers and similar laws. Quote, By launching a war of words that portrayed laborers as transgressors and employers as victims, the government defined the problem of the begging poor as a problem of justice. Able-bodied beggars were in the wrong and should be punished. This kind of rhetoric blurred distinctions between migrant laborers, shirkers, and cheats, leaving the impression that all rejected the work ethic of honest common folk. Although long in use, the label undeserving poor had acquired a behavioral connotation and was applied indiscriminately to all manner of people, drifters, the homeless, petty thieves, prostitutes, masterless servants, the seasonally unemployed. Knowing this, politically-minded critics used pejorative phrases to stigmatize unemployed laborers and imply that vagrants and beggars were so unwilling to help themselves that they, and not statutory law, needed reforming. End quote. You can really see this kind of rhetoric on full display in another legal document from a couple of decades after the Statute of Laborers. This is the Commons Petition Against Vagrants, presented to Parliament in 1376. Here's the opening complaint of this petition, as given in R.B. Dobson's book, The Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Listen for how the language works to blur the lines between laborers and beggars and beggars and criminals so that all end up placed in the same category of immoral and unethical destroyers of the common good. To our Lord the King and his wise Parliament, the Commons show and request that, although various ordinances and statutes have been made in several Parliaments to punish laborers, artificers, and other servants, yet these have continued to subtly and by great malice aforethought to escape the penalty of the said ordinances and statutes. As soon as their masters accuse them of bad service or wish to pay them for their labor according to the form of the statutes, they take flight and suddenly leave their employment and district, going from county to county, hundred to hundred, and vill to vill, in places strange and unknown to their masters. So the said masters do not know where to find them to have remedy or suit against them by virtue of the said statutes. If such vagrant servants be outlawed at the suit of any party, the suitor receives no profit and the fugitives no penalty or punishment because they cannot be found and never consider returning to the district where they have served previously. Above all, and a greater mischief, is the receiving of such vagrant laborers and servants when they have fled from their master's service. For they are taken into service immediately in new places, at such dear wages that example and encouragement is afforded to all servants to depart into fresh places and go from master to master as soon as they are displeased about any matter. 
For fear of such flights, the commons now dare not challenge or offend their servants, but give them whatever they wish to ask, in spite of the statutes and ordinances to the contrary, and this chiefly through fear that they will be received elsewhere, as is said above. But if all such fugitive servants were taken throughout the kingdom when they came to offer their services, and then placed in the stocks, or sent to the nearest jail, to stay there until they confessed from where they had come and from whose service, and made surety to return to their old service, and if it were known in all areas that such vagrants were to be arrested and imprisoned in this way, and not received, as they now are, into service, they would have no desire to flee from their districts as they do to the great impoverishment, destruction, and ruin of the commons if remedy is not applied as quickly as possible. And let it be known to the king and his parliament that many of the said wandering laborers have become mendicant beggars in order to lead an idle life, and they usually go away from their own districts into cities, boroughs, and other good towns to beg although they are able-bodied and might well ease the commons by living on their labor and service if they were willing to serve. Many of them become staff strikers and lead an idle life, commonly robbing poor people in simple villages by two, three, or four together, so that their malice is very hard to bear. The majority of the said servants generally become strong thieves, increasing their robberies and felonies every day on all sides to the destruction of the kingdom. Therefore, let it please our said commons, the safekeeping of the peace and the destruction of such felons and felonies, to forbid, under certain penalties and both within and without franchises, any sustenance and alms to be given to such false mendicants and beggars who are able to serve and work to the great profit and ease of the said commons. Alms should be given only to those who cannot help themselves or purchase food. And let it be established by statute that all such false beggars, as well as the said staff strikers, shall be apprehended throughout the kingdom, within and without franchises, wherever they shall be found, and their bodies should be placed in stocks or led to the nearest jail until they show themselves willing to submit and return to their own areas and serve their neighbors according to the form of the said ordinances and statutes. So, there you see the commons essentially conjuring up a threat out of some fuzzy categorization. Moreover, this type of language, especially when it gets codified into law, can operate as a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Here's Elaine Clark again. Quote, If, as Parliament complained, there was a disturbing increase in the number of people begging alms in the later 1300s, the increase was, in a certain sense, the government's doing. In fact, some would say that this dramatic increase was illusionary, that it was a political fiction rather than a social reality, since the government had deliberately broadened the definition of beggar to include not only migrant workers asking shelter and food, but also servants and laborers asking for higher wages. Blurring the boundaries between laborer and beggar, legislators and image makers crafted a standard against which to judge men and women who rejected the maximum wage rates and fixed salaries of employers. End quote. It's also interesting that other than fining people who either take or pay out wages higher than the statutory limit, the main form of punishment called for in these documents is imprisonment. I've mentioned before in the Medieval True Crime miniseries that for the most part, the Middle Ages did not really have prisons in the way we think of them. What they had were jails, where people would be temporarily held awaiting trial, 
and they had some towers and dungeons where captives could be held for ransom, or political prisoners might be kept on a more long-term basis. We have one of those kinds of cells in the very first episode of Medieval Death Trip, concerning poisoning by toad, which, if you're a newer listener and haven't dipped back that far, I stand by that episode as at least one of our more interesting texts. Uh, Production values have improved a bit since then, I hope, but the core content is still worth checking out if you haven't. Anyway, there are places of confinement from the Roman period through the Middle Ages, but the idea of a state-run penal institution where being held there is itself the punishment for a transgression is something you don't really see until the 14th century. This history is given in a 2006 article, Medieval Prisons Between Myth and Reality, Hell and Purgatory, by Guy Geltner, who also has a whole book on medieval prisons that I have just ordered a copy of after reading his article, so we might have a more detailed discussion of medieval prisons in the future. But to the point of today's discussion, it is right in the period of these vagrancy laws that we see this new style of prison emerging throughout Europe. And it's notable that the contemporary descriptions of these prisons frequently characterize them as places for holding people who owe money, and then you might find other criminals there too. Uh, Geltner does not go into this in his article. Uh, It may be addressed in his book. I don't know yet. But it does appear to me that incarceration seems to emerge as a fitting form of punishment for people whom you still hope to extract some value from. Though, interestingly, it was by no means a universal or even common custom to make prisoners work while they were imprisoned. And, in fact, when prisoners worked, it was often just to pay for their own confinement, for they were, indeed, expected to pay for their board while incarcerated. Um, And not necessarily to try to pay off whatever debts they owed that had gotten them put into prison in the first place. Another feature of these prisons, especially for nonviolent offenders, was that they tended to be quite porous, sometimes with prisoners being allowed to go outside of the walls to attend to legal affairs or to go to family events or to stand outside the prison begging for alms as another way to help pay for their own imprisonment. Geltner mentions prisoners begging in the streets as a very common motif in prison accounts, and that does just leave me wondering how much that applied during Edward's reign. Isn't there some kind of cognitive dissonance that would come out of putting people into jail for begging, only for the jailer to let them out to go begging again? I don't know, maybe once they're a prisoner, they now have a legitimate cause for begging, which they lacked before, um, and that's the justification. You know, the funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. Ah! Or maybe English prisons in the 1350s and 70s weren't letting prisoners out to beg, or maybe the actual enforcement of the vagrancy laws was indeed so weak that the begging paradox never really became an issue. I don't know. Uh, If anyone out there has studied this issue, reach out to me. I'd love to get an answer or even just a theory. Uh, You can tweet to me at MDTPodcast. So we were brought to this question of vagrancy by the tale of Thomas Fuller from last episode. Fuller got arrested in 1484, a full century after the wage warfare of the post-plague decades, and there's nothing in his story that points to Fuller trying to wrangle higher wages. Indeed, his seems to be more a story of a rather desperate unemployment. Quote, He had no handicraft to support him, and so lived a poor life among country neighbors, procuring food and clothing for himself, and that with great pains, in a moderate degree by spade and fork. 
Hence, not without cause, he used often to leave his home and countryside and wandered about alone, doing the round of other counties, well satisfied if his daily toil won him the necessaries of life. End quote. It is interesting to hear that specific idiom recur, uh, laboring for the necessaries of life, uh, which we saw used in the statute of laborers' condemnation of beggars. Anyway, our narrator tells us that Thomas took up with the sheep rustler because, being a stranger in those parts himself, he thought this seemingly innocent shepherd might be able to hook him up with another job opportunity in the area. And maybe that's all there is to it. But I still have to wonder if besides just hoping to network on the local job market, Thomas isn't living in a world that still looked down on wanderers and migrants with suspicion and perhaps even with the cudgel of the law to drive them off or put them away. Since we just talked about prisons, I did want to touch on one little linguistic detail from Thomas's story uh, and also from Richard Bay's story from that same episode. In both narratives, we encounter the repeated phrase, foul dungeon, into which our hapless accused get thrown. In the original Latin, this foul dungeon is a tetrum ergostulum. Tetrum is an adjective meaning, indeed, foul, noisome, loathsome. Ergastulum is a more interesting word derived from the Greek verb ergazomai, meaning to work. The erg in there is the same root that lends its name to the unit of energy, equal to 100 nanojoules, or roughly the energy consumed by a housefly doing one push-up. Anyway, ergadstilum in classical Latin appears to have meant a workhouse, specifically a building where slaves were sent for punishment. Or maybe the word is derived from ergadstilos, a pillar to which slaves were tied for punishment. Either way, by the time you get to later Latin and medieval Latin, it has lost its specificity and we find it referring to debtors' prisons and also any kind of holding dungeon or cell. Uh, it's even used to refer to anchorite cells in a totally non-criminal context. But back in those classical roots, we do see this kind of prison tied to the idea of a place for workers who owe labor to their masters and where it might be extracted from them. To conclude this episode, while staying in a linguistic vein, we have our mystery word. Today's word, as we continue our word list beyond the standard English alphabet, begins with a character which is, like many a prisoner, bound. It is, in fact, a ligature, two letter forms tied together into one character. We last saw a ligature with the letter ash, which is a blended A and E. Today's letter is very similar, just swapping out the A for an O. Unlike ash, this letter does not have a simple name in English. In French, one of the few modern languages that still uses it regularly, in words like oeuvre and boeuf, it's sometimes called udonlo, or eno, which is still more just a description than a name, though I suppose it's on par with w as a letter name. Anyway, in the same way that Ash developed, the OE ligature is a bona fide medieval invention, emerging out of scribal practice in writing Latin. Classical Latin generally used OE, uh, written as two separate letters, to represent the diphthong oi, most commonly found in words they had borrowed from Greek. In medieval Latin pronunciation, that diphthong had broadly collapsed into a single vowel sound, which is why, as with ash, the scribes began representing it as a blended character or ligature. You will find it surviving in English in Greco-Roman borrowings, though 
English practice since the early 20th century has dropped the ligature and just reverted to using the letters O and E if you're in Britain, or just E if you're American. That's why Americans have fetus and fetid with just an E in the first syllable, while British English spells those words with O-E. And again, that pattern also applies to ash, which is why Brits spell pediatrician and other certain words starting with that same initial Greek root that tend to get a lot of news coverage. Uh, that's why they spell it P-A-E-D, whereas Americans spell it P-E-D. And dear to our hearts, this is why you see the middle syllable of medieval spelled both I-E and I-A-E, though in that case, even British spelling has shifted towards dropping the A. Uh, and that has also happened with O-E, in that while the Brits have retained it more than the Americans have, both forms of English have dropped the O from a number of words that once had it. In older texts, you'll find O at the beginning of the word esophagus and near the end of diarrhea. Uh, and just to maintain English's world-famous inconsistency in spelling, both America and England have kept the classical O in words like subpoena and phoenix, though, again, we haven't kept the ligature. Anyway, as with ash, the OE ligature found itself repurposed to represent sounds in non-romance languages that had a sound not clearly covered by the other Latin characters, though in today's particular word, that seems to maybe be a later scholarly practice rather than something done consistently by medieval scribes. Our word comes from Old Norse, and specifically from Geir Thomason Zoega's Concise Dictionary of Old Icelandic, and that matters because Zoega uses the OE ligature in his standardization of Old Icelandic, but not everyone does. In fact, in some editions of the text in which our word appears, it's spelled with an ash instead, and appears in some other dictionaries under ash, which actually reflects a greater problem with this word than just consistency in spelling. But what is this word? Our mystery word for today is Urgesheimer. If you're familiar with other Germanic languages, or are just a fan of Norse mythology, the second half of that word is probably recognizable. Heimer, or Heim, as in Jotunheim, the realm or home of the Jotnar, or giants. Uh, English home is a cognate. Heim also has a broader sense of the world, the home of us all. Uh, and that seems to be its sense in this word, Urgesheimer. Which leaves the first half of the compound, Urgis, to sort out. Zoiga takes it as derived from the noun Ugir, a frightener, terrifier, or the verb ugya, to make terrible, to frighten. Uh, so urgesheimer would be this terrifying or terrible world. Actually, Zoega only gives this world as his definition, either simplifying the kinning or maybe acknowledging, as we'll see in a bit, that there's some ambiguity about the etymology of this word. Anyway, World of Terrors felt like a fitting word for an episode about a post-plague legal dystopia. And that vibe is there in the sole occurrence of this word in the Old Norse corpus. It appears in a text we've heard on this show before, the 13th century poem Solarlioth, as featured in episode 72, An Icelandic Vision of the Afterlife. Our word, Urgesheimer, shows up in the 30th stanza. Sunthir Thvivalda at ver hrigvir foru urgeshemi or, or, as translated by Benjamin Thorpe, sins are the cause that sorrowing we depart from this world. 
As I mentioned, Ugesheimer is a hapax legomena, a word from a dead language that appears only once in the surviving body of texts, which means we don't have a whole lot of context clues to help determine its meaning. But the idea of this terrible world, this fallen world, this world of woe, all these flavors of meaning fit the religious context of Solarlioth pretty well. But we do run into a complication, which is that alternate spelling with the initial ash. Uh, now, I don't currently have access to a critical edition of Solarlioth that lays out all the manuscript variations, so I don't know what spelling is most common in the manuscripts. But even with that information, our only surviving manuscripts containing the poem are quite late, from the 1600s at the earliest, so even their spellings of Old Icelandic words are not necessarily great testimony to what was intended back in the 1200s when the poem was written. Anyway, if you do take this word as starting with ash, then the first element might not be ugus, meaning terrible, but rather agus, meaning the sea or ocean. And ocean world, as another kenning with the sense of the world bounded by water, that fits fine too. It aligns with classically influenced medieval Christian cosmology. That meaning doesn't really add anything to the stanza, uh, other than a couple of syllables, but that's all lots of kinnings and poetic compounds do, so that doesn't make it an implausible reading. However, because it justifies our use of Zoega's spelling and completes one more item in our alphabetical mystery word excursion, I'm going to go with the OE ligature and the terrible world reading. And one more quick speculative note before we go uh, about that initial terrifying element, ugir. I wondered if it might at all be related to the word ogre, certainly a terrifying figure, uh, at least before the days of Shrek's cultural dominance. It turns out the etymology of ogre is itself rather mysterious. English gets it from French, and in French, it first appears in the fairy tales of Charles Perrault, from 1697. Some propose that Perrault adapted it from Italian orco, meaning demon or monster, which itself goes back to Latin orcus, one of the underworld gods. Orcus is also generally proposed as the root for the orkneas that appear in the list of the monstrous offspring of Cain in Beowulf, uh, and would go on to be taken up by Tolkien as his orcs. However, this orcus connection to both orkneas and ogre is still a matter of conjecture, and I wonder if perhaps there could be a monstrous Scandinavian origin for the term. Though it's also certainly possible that maybe Ugir in Old Norse also comes from Orcus, in the same way that Old English might have borrowed from Latin. 13th century Old Norse does exhibit some Latinate influences, like most medieval European languages, so given that as near as I can tell, the etymology of Urgir is just as obscure as that for Ogre or Orkneas, it seems like it's kind of anybody's guess. But it really feels like there should be some kind of connection there, doesn't it? However, that feeling is precisely how you fall prey to false friends, linguistically speaking, so we should be cautious. But you can connect, not falsely, but truly with me, on Twitter at MDT Podcast or by email to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can get more information about the sources for this and every episode, uh, as well as download and listen to old episodes at that same website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. 
And if you'd like to help support the show materially, you can do that through Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. And I'd like to thank Christina and Steve for becoming patrons since our last episode. Our patrons get access to our audiobook of Jordanus's Descripta Mirabilia, or Wonders of the East, as well as other bonus audio content. Thanks, Christina and Steve. Your support and the support of all our patrons really does make a difference to me. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening. If all proceeds according to plan, you never know if something might pop up that jumps the queue. Uh, But right now, I'm planning next time on starting up a short, multi-part journey through a great example of medieval fictional crime. I hope you'll join me then. So remember, if you're not over 60, you better be out there working for 2018-level wages or the king's going to be very displeased with you. And thanks again for listening.